0: Hello there. Welcome to this week's 10 minute recap of everything we were supposed to read in the Bible this week, which is Numbers 28 to Deuteronomy 14. Now, we're reading through the entire Bible this year at Bible Discovery. So, if you don't have your discovery guide or if this is your first time here, then make sure to check out our website in the description box for more info. So, in our scripture this week, it was mostly the Mosaic Law, the law given to Moses for Israel by God. Let's get to it. In Numbers 28, we get a rundown of the required offerings to God. So these are broken down into daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly feasts and offerings. Now, the Feast of Weeks, also known as the Feast of Harvest or Pentecost, is described. It was one of the three feasts to be celebrated yearly at the tabernacle and later at the temple, celebrating the provision of God. Numbers 29 then continues outlining the yearly sacrifices and their associated festivals or feasts. First outlined is the Feast of Trumpets. So this was a day that opened up the seventh month, which was a month full of holy days. And next is the Day of Atonement that was held on the 10th day of that seventh month. So this was the day that the the scapegoat sacrifice happened and when the high priest would make atonement for the people by going into the Holy of Holies. Then the 15th day of that seventh month Uh, So five days later was the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of the Ingathering. Now, this was a week long event celebrating the harvest while also living in temporary shelters, which reminded the Israelites of how God brought them out of the wilderness and into the promised land where they could plant and harvest and live year round. Numbers 30 is all about vows to God, but specifically it outlines protections for women who would make vows to God. Now, due to the patriarchal structure of the ancient Near East, women who were living in their father's homes and married women were at risk of having their vows to God overturned or not taken seriously by the men in their lives. And this chapter provides principles of judgment for dismissive male authorities and outlines situations that allow these women off the hook, so to speak, for certain vows to God. It does mention, however, that women not under the authority of a father or husband, so widows or divorced women, their vows to God were to be binding on them in all circumstances, just like a man's. Numbers 31 records Moses' last military mission before his death. So there's a battle between Israel and Midian, uh, and the record includes a death announcement for the prophet Balaam. In Numbers 32, the Israelite tribe of Reuben and Gad request the territory that Israel had already taken that was east of the Jordan River, and they received this land, but on the agreement that they still had to continue on the conquest with the rest of the Israelites. We're also told that the half-tribe of Manasseh went on their own sort of conquest, and they took land and also settled on the east of the Jordan. Numbers 33 provides us with Israel's travel itinerary from Egypt all the way to the plain of Moab across the Jordan River from Jericho, so right as they set themselves up to go into the conquest. And the chapter notes that Moses recorded these stages in Israel's journey because he was instructed by God to do so. It also contains another warning to Israel that this conquest is not a respecter of persons. In other words, it's not about ethnicity. It was about judging evil. God says to the people that if they decide to engage in the same evil practices as the people they were driving out, then God says, I will do to you what I plan to do to them. Numbers 34 records what should be the future boundaries of the land of Israel, and it names the men who will be responsible for figuring out what land portions belong to what family. Joshua is named as leader, naturally, and Eleazar as the high priest, and then one man from each of the tribes of Israel is named, minus the tribes of Reuben and Gad, who had already fully chosen their territory on that east side of the Jordan. In Numbers thirty-five, God tells the Israelites that when they inherit their property, they're all supposed to give some towns and their surrounding territories to the tribe of Levi, so that the Levites can live and have flocks of their own. Remember that they don't get a regular land portion because their inheritance is technically the priesthood of Israel. And then Moses outlines the six cities of refuge that will be Levitical cities, specifically for people who accidentally kill someone. It's a way that spilled human blood could still be dealt with, even in a case where the killer in question was not deserving of execution. Alright, so Numbers 36 ends the book with concerns about the daughters of Zelephahad inheriting land. So the tribal family is worried that if those daughters marry outside the tribe, then their inheritance of land will also switch tribes and make Manasseh's inheritance smaller than it was supposed to be. So the solution was that female inheritors of property needed to marry within their larger tribal grouping so that the land would stay within the tribe. Okay, now on to Deuteronomy. So, Deuteronomy is a sort of retelling of the law of God, but it's aimed specifically at the generation of Israel that was going to inherit the promised land. So, there's a practical focus on how the law should be applied in a landlocked society rather than one that was traveling around the wilderness. So chapter one sees Moses expounding or explaining the law to the Israelites as they prepare for the conquest. And Moses retells their history of establishing leaders or judges, the history of the 12 spies who went through Canaan and incited rebellion against God. Basically, they refused to conquest out of fear. And when they then decided to go in and fight anyway against the counsel of Moses, who had told them that God was not going to be backing their fight, they got beat. Deuteronomy 2 retells the history of the Israelites spending 38 years in the wilderness. So there's this really interesting note, a few notes actually, by Moses about how God would not allow the Israelites to fight certain people groups like the Edomites and the Ammonites because God had given their land to them and how they, the Edomites and the Ammonites, et cetera, had forced other nations out of those lands and taken them over. So this seems to be Moses providing historical examples for the Israelites of how God had done this sort of thing, this sort of conquest before. He had given land grants to people groups and enabled them to take and hold those land grants. There's also a record of the defeat of Sihon, king of Heshbon and his territory when he refused to let the Israelites pass through uh, his land peacefully. Deuteronomy 3 records the defeat of another pagan king who came against the Israelites, Og, king of Bashan. So how the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh split the taken territory, and then how God had Moses commission Joshua to take over as the leader of Israel. Deuteronomy 4 commands and admonishes the Israelites to obey God, to adhere to the covenant that they have with him. Moses specifically calls out idol creation and worship as evil here. He portrays Israel themselves as God's image in verse 20, how God had pulled Israel from the furnace of Egypt. So to make idols then in a similar fashion was a very high form of evil. And it would cause cause God to judge Israel as they were bringing God's judgment on Canaan. Moses also names three cities of refuge on that east side of the Jordan, the territory they already had taken. Deuteronomy 5 contains a retelling of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 6 contains the Jewish Shema, a central element of the law and of following God. It goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. And it goes on, ensuring adherence to the covenant. Deuteronomy 7 outlines rules for the conquest, so it highlights the purpose of the conquest was to rid the land of evil and idolatry. The Israelites were to drive out the people and destroy any of the people who stayed to fight them. They're told that this won't happen all at once, it's going to happen little by little, and that they need to be careful not to become like the Canaanites in that process, or else they too would be destroyed in God's judgment. Deuteronomy 8 admonishes Israel not to forget God once they settle in the land and become comfortable. So the laws and the feasts were to be constant, inconvenient reminders to Israel about how they were to be different. Deuteronomy 9 reminds the people that it's not because they're righteous that the land of Canaan is being given to them, but rather because the people in the land currently were guilty of so much horrendous evil. Moses reminds them of their failings in the incident of the golden calf and how they can easily bring judgment of themselves on themselves as well. Deuteronomy 10 continues that history of the golden calf, how Moses remade the tablets of the law that he had earlier broken. And the last verse gives us a supremely cool description of God and it's worth the read. That's in verses 17 to 21. Deuteronomy 11 talks about how great the promised land is in terms of its potential for fruitfulness. But again, how Israel has to be extremely careful not to fall into the lifestyle of the surrounding cultures, thus bringing judgment on themselves. Sensing a theme here. Deuteronomy 12 gives one of the ways that they were to minimize this risk and it was by centralizing worship once they were established in the land. Chapter 13 discusses how serious of a crime worshiping other gods was. It was a capital offense, as was false prophecy. And finally, chapter 14 outlines practices that are common in that day, and but they were not acceptable for Israel. So certain mourning practices and di- uh, dietary laws, for example, are outlined. And the chapter also outlines what Israel Israelite tithing was supposed to look like specifically. So essentially 10% of their harvest would be used in a big yearly feast of celebration of God's goodness. And they would share it with the Levites. But every three years they donate in the entirety of that 10% so that the Levites could celebrate exclusively. That's it for this week. Happy studying. I'll see you next time.